Fritz is the lead pastor of Abundant Life Christian Fellowship in Silicon Valley and the author of five books. He also founded the Canis Movement, an organization that is committed to seeing the multi-ethnic church become the new normal in our world. Brian has been a featured speaker at the Willow Creek Global Leadership Summit, at Catalyst events, and at other national conferences. Join us in welcoming Pastor Brian Loritz to Scottsdale Bible. Well, good morning. It is great seeing you here. Uh, I don't know how y'all deal with the heat here. I think I saw on the way to church the devil walking down the street in shorts and a tank top, waving himself. It's, uh, yeah, my flight leaves later on today. I love you guys, but I got to get out of here. I just got to roll. <laughs> Unbelievable. If you've got your devices, please take them out. Click on your Bible apps, not your Pokemon Go apps, and meet me in James chapter 5. James chapter 5, pick me up in verse 7. Oh, wonderful. They put a nice little ticker on a chocolate preacher. 34 minutes and 22, 21, 20 seconds. That is cruel and unusual punishment. Like that, I, I feel discriminated against uh, right about now. Do y'all do that to Jamie all the time? Oh, okay, I can't complain about that. All right, um, so it is so good to be here with you. I love Scottsdale. The number one thing I love about Scottsdale is that uh, in 1998, I met a girl from Scottsdale uh, in Los Angeles at the time, but she's from here. Uh, I saw her in church. She had just come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I felt compelled to disciple her, be a part of her spiritual formation, and uh, tomorrow we'll celebrate 18 years of marriage. That's my beloved bride, Corey. She grew up here, went to, uh, went to school called Xavier, and uh, in fact, her, her mom and sister are still here, and it's just good. Every time I'm here, I just feel like uh, I'm, I'm back home, so it's a, it's a joy. Also, some of you all um, will probably know this name. Most of you all, I'm guessing, may not, but I went to a small little Bible college back east um, called Philadelphia College of Bible at the time, and its president at the time was a guy by the name of Dr. Cheryl Babb, and uh, Dr. Babb spent some time here uh, leading this church, Scott. Scottsdale Bible Church, and he just made huge deposits in my life. So I am deeply appreciative for the history and legacy of this church. It has impacted me greatly. And then uh, Tim Kimmel, uh, Elder Tim Kimmel, has been a mentor of mine for years. Uh, that man is crazy, as many of you guys know. Uh, he came to Memphis one time when I was pastoring there and uh, took me and my wife and kids out to dinner. And there, in a little barbecue joint, he taught my three sons how to moonwalk uh, in the middle of the, of the deal. So anyways, it, is, uh, it has been good. I, I hung out with him last night after service. It was good hanging out with him and getting to catch up a little bit more with him and Darcy. If you have your uh, Bibles, uh, again, pick me up in James chapter 5, verse 7. Feel compelled to just unpack several verses with you this morning, then we can get on to the rest of our day. James writes these words beginning in James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being, here's that word again, patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also, verse 8, be patient. I think he's trying to make a point. 
Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Make a note of this phrase, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained synonym for patience, steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen, make note of this phrase, the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, Father, would you speak to us, we pray. We have spoken to you in worship, and, but this experience is not to be a monologue where we do all the talking. Now, having heard from us, Lord God, we need to hear from you. So God, as I stand here, I'm reminded of the prayer the old African-American preachers used to pray, and that is, God, would you stand in my body, think with my mind, speak with my tongue, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. God, my job is not to change anybody today. I can't even change myself. But my job is to be like that sower in Matthew 13 who scatters the seed of your word. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will take it from our heads to our hearts and to our feet. As my grandmama used to pray, God put shoe leather on this word. Make it plain and clear, practical, powerful. Change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most frustrating things that could ever happen to an oyster is to have lodged within the confines of its shell a little teeny grain of sand. Now, most of the time, Scottsdale Bible, you know how this works. Most of the times when that happens, the oyster is easy to, it's easy for the oyster to readily locate that grain of sand and to remove or expel it from off of its premises and go on about the day's affairs. But now, there are those rare moments where try as that oyster may, he just can't seem to get rid of that grain of sand. It's doing everything that it can think of to get rid of that grain of sand, but it, it just can't, here it is, it, it just can't change its situation. It's in a circumstance it cannot get out of. And when this happens, this oyster now finds itself irritated and frustrated and exacerbated and every other kind of unsanctified aided. To quote a 1990s urban poet, it's at this moment where this oyster feels like it's about to lose its mind up in here, up in here. And to a mostly vanilla crowd, you wouldn't get that reference, I know. <laughs> it's at the end of itself. So what is this oyster to do? You know what the oyster does. It is as if the oyster shrugs its shoulders and says, if I can't get rid of this grain of sand, if I can't get rid of the irritation, I might as well make the most of it. So it locates the grain of sand and begins to coat it over and over and over again with a liquid substance that, ladies, when it solidifies and calcifies, it turns into something you pay top dollar for, a pearl. You do know 
At the end of the day, all a pearl is, is the fruit of a frustrated oyster. <laughs> Some ladies in the house right now, you are wearing someone's frustration, literally. If there was no irritation, if there was no frustration, if there was no exacerbation, if there just wasn't a sense of, I'm about to lose it, there would be no pearl. God has sent me all the way from Silicon Valley, where the weather is nice, <laughs> to Phoenix, Scottsdale, to let you know that everyone in here this morning, under the sound of my voice, no matter where you may be on the spiritual continuum, you, you may have grown up in the church, or this may be your first time in church, but if you've been made in the Imago Dei, the image of God, God says, I have an all points bulletin on your life. I have an assignment for your life. I have an agenda for your life. Your mama and daddy may not have planned on you being here. And parenthetically, you know that. If the next sibling closest to you is a decade older than you, then you was a surprise. But God, in his sovereignty, you were not a surprise to him. He created you on purpose and for a purpose. And he wants to lift you up as a pearl of great price. He wants you to radiate his glory here on earth through all of your labors. He, he, he says that you are my workmanship, Ephesians 2.10. That word workmanship is the Greek word poema from which we get the English word poem from. You are his masterpiece. But it's at this moment where we get to the un-American portion of the sermon because, because you and I say, yes, 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 we want to be a pearl. Make me a pearl. And when I get to talk about how we're his workmanship, man, if I was in a chocolate church, cue the Hammond B3 organ, we're going to be shouting and rejoicing and saying amen. I know it's a different crowd. It don't seem like y'all do that here. <laughs> Which means I got to preach longer because I don't know if you're getting it. You want me to hurry up, you better talk to me. Amen, preacher brother. When you're ready for me to finish, say, land the plane, bring it on home. Amen. You can tell that was his first time doing that in church. Amen. Um, but, but here's the deal. Our problem is while we love the destination, make us a pearl, we just don't like the journey or the process. Because there are no such things as pearls without going through life's irritating, frustrating, exacerbating grains of sand. If I could mix my metaphors, I, I would tell you that we do not get to God's delivery room of blessings without first taking a pit stop in his waiting room called patience. And I don't like waiting. I want to get to where I'm going quick, fast, in a hurry. I want overnight character. I want quick, fast blessings. But if you were to peruse God's kitchen, you would be shocked to discover that in God's kitchen, there are no microwaves. Only crockpots. So here's what God says, Brian, you're here, and my will for you, Brian, is that you get to a place of, 
a fall off the bone faith. I, I, I want to give you I, I want you to I want you to be a blessing to others. I'm so glad, Brian, that you've got the seminary training. I'm so glad you've worked on doctoral stuff. But but there are certain things that I'm asking of you that you can't get in a classroom. So you're here. I want you to be here. So I, I, I got to put you in my crock pot, put the lid on top of it, slow cook you, and you're going to have to learn to be patient. Because the only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing that you had. So you're going to have to deal with some things. This is exactly what James is getting at when we come to our text. Greek scholars tell us that if you were to analyze James's epistle next to all the other epistles in their original language, if you're new to uh, the, the, the church and the Bible, you need to know in, in the original language in the New Testament, it's written in Greek. And, and Greek scholars tell us that, that if you were to analyze James's epistle in, in the original language, one of the things that makes his letter stand out from all the other uh, books of the New Testament is his has the highest concentration of what we would call in Greek construction imperatives. The idea of an imperative is a command. James's letter, it is astounding. It is one command after another command after another command. In fact, the whole book begins with a command when James says, count it all joy. And now we get to our text, verse 7. Out the gates, he begins with a command. Be patient. It's a command. He ain't giving us tweetable advice to consider. He ain't running something by us for us to contemplate. He's not suggesting. He is, he is looking at his eyeball to eyeball, and he's saying, I know you want to hurry up and get there, but I am commanding you, be patient. I don't like that. In fact, those two English words, be patient, it's actually one word in the Greek. This is as technical as it gets. It is a compound word in the Greek called makrothumos, makrothumos. Macro simply means long. Thumos, from which we get the English word thermometer, this instrument we use to measure heat. Thumos is anger. So, so literally, makrothumos, translated as be patient, it, it means to, to be long towards anger. I love what D.A. Carson says at this juncture in his wonderful book, Scandalous, this, this, this foremost New Testament scholar who teaches at Trinity Evangelical Divinity Seminary in, in Deerfield. It is D.A. Carson. Carson, who said in this wonderful book, Scandalous, the reason why we Christians do not ever pray for patience is because we are theologically sophisticated and astute enough to realize that implicit and embedded in the very request for patience lies another request, and that is God put me in a situation I do not like. <laughs> you don't learn patience in air-conditioned, cushioned seat environments. You don't learn patience when the bank account is full. You don't learn patience in that rare season when your kids are compliant. You don't learn patience when the health report says you're doing great. You don't learn patience when the friendship is going well or the marriage is flourishing. Never forget, and I know exactly where I am, 
I say this in the context of Scottsdale, you must never forget, prosperity is a horrible teacher. You only learn patience when you wake up one morning and you feel a lump on your breast. You're waiting on results. You only learn patience when you come back from your physical and the doctor checks out your blood work and he says to you your numbers are a little high and you discover you have prostate cancer. You only learn patience when you're in one of those seasons where there's too much month at the end of the money. You only learn patience when you have done everything that you could to raise that child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. No, you weren't a perfect parent. But they've turned their back on God and have ventured out into the far country. And you can't control that. You only learn patience where once again you got to put on that hideous bridesmaid dress. You standing in line next to the bride thinking she ain't even as cute as me. <laughs> I got to be careful with that, singles. The end zone is not being married. Sure, there's a lot of single folk who want to be married, but let me give you some insider information. There's a lot of married folk who want to be single. <laughs> Flourish where you are. You only learn patience when once again you're given a pink slip And you're going on interview after interview after interview and something in you says, if one more person tells me I'm overqualified, James says, be patient. You keep living and there are certain things, situations in your life that the letters behind your name won't solve, a check won't get you out of, your social network can't cure. You keep living, you will experience various tours of duty in God's cosmic crockpot. Oh, oh, okay, okay, Pastor, I, I understand, but you're being a little nebulous right now. I, I need something really practical. Exactly what does patience look like? I, I love it. Look back at verse 7. James says, if you really want a picture, a practical picture of patience, look to the farmer. I love this. No farmer would ever go to his barren field before he has to get it ready for harvest. Look at his barren field, then back up at God, then back at his barren field and say, God, in the name of Jesus, I command corn. <laughs> Send the corn, God, waiting on you. You know how this works. What the farmer does instead is he... He plows and he plows and he plows and he cultivates and he cultivates and he cultivates and he sows and he sows and he sows, sun up to sundown, day in to day out, sweat beating down his brow. And he does all that understanding one fundamental principle, unless God sends the rain, his labor is in vain. So what the farmer teaches us about patience, I love this, is that patience is never passive resignation but it is always active participation. 
It, it is me doing my something, waiting on God to do his something, knowing that when God adds his something to my something, now we've got something. If I had time, I've got 15 minutes and 30, 29, 28 seconds. If I had time, I would tell you about the Apostle Paul. And how the majority of Paul's ministry took place from a situation he could not change called prison. When, when Paul gets to prison, he doesn't throw a pity party. He doesn't just sit there twiddling his arms. Instead, when he gets there to prison, he says, hey, do you have a pen and a piece of paper? There's some churches I want to write. And he writes and he writes and he writes and he writes. And you read each of these letters, you see something else he's doing while in jail. In each of these letters, he's saying, I'm praying for you. So in this situation, he cannot change. He's writing and praying and writing and praying and writing and praying. Oh, and I love this. To the Philippians, from jail, he says, thanks for praying for me. But I want you to understand, since I've been in this situation, uh, you could translate it as crockpot, since I've been here, the gospel has gone forth throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. This is if Paul's saying, look, these two guardsmen chained to either side of me, we're stuck together. So I turn to my left and I say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Turn to my right, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And the gospel has gone forth in this situation he could not change. That is active waiting. My elders, when I was interviewing to be the senior pastor of this church, they said, well, Brian, we just want to give you a list of questions. One of them, they said, what is your theology of healing? I said, oh, that's easy. Pray and take your medicine. <laughs> now, I'm not ripping on my charismatic friends. I, I, I know this isn't going to go over well here. I, I would consider myself charismatic with a seatbelt. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not <laughs> ripping on them. But some of them, you know, waiting on God, waiting on God, waiting on God. Then, then they're going to die and get in the presence of God. God's going to look at his watch going, what are you doing here? Well, God, I was waiting on you, waiting on my healing. God said, I had your healing at Walgreens. <laughs> Patience is not just passive resignation. It is me doing all that I can understanding that unless God sends the rain. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine the other day. He's got a kid out in the far country, living the life of a prodigal. He says, I just got off a 21-day fast, fasting for my boy to come back home. And meanwhile, I'm loving on him, taking him out. He's doing all that he can he waits on God. Oh, I love this. The text says, while you wait, do not grumble. I, I didn't hear an amen on that one. <laughs> now, you you got to understand, James is writing to a group of uh, ethnic Jews who have recently converted to Christianity, and these ethnically Jewish Christians, when they hear the word grumble, the first thing they've got to think of are their ancestors and the Exodus experience where what was supposed to be a six-week journey turns into a 40-year debacle. Why? Because murmur, 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 grumble, grumble, grumble. It is as if God is saying to them, you should have been there by now. But because you keep murmuring, grumbling, and complaining... I've actually had to add 39 years and 46 weeks to your trip. 
Could it be God saying to some of us, hey, in my perfect will, you're done. You're out of the crock pot. This situation is over, but, but you're still in it because murmur, 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 grumble, grumble, grumble. Why does God get so upset when his children murmur, grumble, and complain? The same reason we get upset when ours do, because we understand the fundamental message of grumbling is, I know better than you. Parenthesis. I don't know y'all, y'all don't know me. My flight leaves tonight at midnight. I gotta go to New York City, but I start my vacation later on this evening. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. So I don't have any insider information. Jamie hadn't told me anything. Tim hadn't told me anything. I just gotta tell you, if there's one area church folk got the market cornered on, if there's one area we've got a monopoly, it's in the area of murmuring, grumbling, and complaining. I didn't think I'd get an amen on that. Church folk just murmur, grumble, complain, grumble, 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 complain, 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 and they'll be back next Sunday. As a senior pastor, I'd love to say to some of my members, you got options. keep coming back. I was just, just meeting with a pastor friend of mine not too long ago. He just got selected as the youngest person uh, to be a lead pastor in the history of this church. And, uh, and three months into his tenure, I take him out to lunch and I'm so excited for him. Man, how's it going? Man, he's not excited at all. He has a scowl on his face. He goes, how's it going? He says, literally, he says, I need to be doing about 10 funerals and it'll be going really well. <laughs> now, if that sounds harsh, that's actually biblical. If you read the book of Numbers, when the 10 spies bring a negative report and people start murmuring, grumbling, and complaining, God says, I'm just gonna wait. Everybody who's over the age of 20, I'm just gonna wait you out. I'm just gonna do a bunch of funerals. Don't murmur, don't grumble, don't complain. It ain't cute. Like when I was single and I'd take a girl out on a date and if she was bitter, negative, cynical, grumbling, complaining, nothing in me said, ooh, can I take you out again? If I can talk to you seasoned saints for a minute, again, I don't, have any, I don't have any insider information, but you seasoned saints are supposed to be in the patriarch years of your life. You're supposed to be holding court at the local McDonald's or some breakfast joint with a long line of young people with pen and pad in hand, just waiting to get pearls of wisdom from you. That's what you're supposed to be doing in the patriarch years of your life. But for many of you all, no one's even calling you, wanting to get wisdom from you because the landscape of your life is off. You are negative, you are bitter, you are grumbling, you are complaining, you're not supportive, it's just who you are. And I talked to some of your, you know, your, your, your daughters-in-law, whatever, man. It, it, the stuff you complain about is, can't believe she's not showing up for spring break. She knows every year we go to the same place for spring break, and Wednesday of that week, we all go down to the beach right around 5 o'clock. We're, we're, we're dressed in our linen outfits. Photographer comes out right as the sun is setting, snaps the picture that goes on the Christmas card. She ain't coming. She messed up my Christmas card. Ooh, I want to go out next year. Can we do it again next year? James says, don't grumble. You know what the antithesis of grumbling is? Joy! Count it all joy! Joy is the believer's curb appeal. It's what makes people want to enter into the house. When you're buying a house, if the landscaping is off, you probably don't want to go inside of it. 
joy. Don't grumble. All right, Pastor, I'm here. I'm in it. I'm in the crock pot. What do I do? Let's go home on this. When you're in the crock pot, yes, talk to your pastor. Yes, get godly counsel. Yes, lean into your community groups, your growth groups, life groups, whatever you may call them. Yes, talk to, to, to your friends. Open up, share. But, but James actually says, look to the prophets. My youngest son is a beast on the basketball court. I know every dad's supposed to say that, but man, I'm, I'm, I'm really telling you. We lived in New York City for a while, and he made uh, two all-city teams. Um, he's averaging 20-something points a game. Uh, the kid's 12 years old now. Um, around our house, we call him RP, retirement plan. <laughs> if you were to walk into his bedroom, one of the things you'll see is a, is a, is a shoe that he drew when he was five years old. And I'll never forget, when, I, when he first saw it, I, I, when I first saw it, I says, Jaden, what's, what's that? He's a kid five years old, and he drew it. He goes, uh, Dad, when, when, um, when Nike gives me my first shoe contract, I'm going to tell him, don't worry about designing it. I've already designed my first shoe. I'm like, speak those things, boys. Speak them. <laughs> and let me teach you about tithing and where to write that tithe check to. <laughs> if you walk into his room, there's all these posters on the wall. There's posters of Michael Jordan. Train up a child in the way he should go. Posters of Kobe Bryant, parenting fail. Um, Julius Irving, all these posters. There's been times I've walked into his room and I've seen him on the bed just looking at these posters and he's just kind of gleaning inspiration. And then I'll watch him grab his ball, go outside and shoot some hoops. James says, when it comes to patience, you actually have some patience posters. They're called the prophets. The prophets are God's divine show and tell for his patience. God says to Ezekiel, for example, he goes, my, my, my people just aren't getting it. They, they keep leaving me, but, but, but I'm, I'm steadfast. I'm, I'm patient with them. I'm, I'm always here. I'm not, I'm, I'm not just kind of this flighty thing they are. So, so Ezekiel, I don't just want you to preach a, a sermon just extolling them to, to be faithful. I, I, I want to actually use you as a visual aid. So I want to use you to communicate my patience with my people. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to strip down naked. Leave on your loincloth. Lay on your left side. Ezekiel's like, for how long? God says, for 390 days, don't move. Why? Because Ezekiel, I don't move with my people. I'm patient. Did you realize you're here today by the patience of God? I mean, did, did you realize the very fact that you're breathing right now is emblematic of God's patience? Did, did you realize that if God were impatient with you, you'd have been out of here long time ago? God comes to Hosea. 
God says, Hosea, my, my people just aren't understanding. We're, we're, in, we're in covenant with each other, and, um, and they keep cheating on me. His words, they're whoring after other gods. They're, they're committing spiritual adultery. But I want them to understand um, th that our relationship isn't quid pro quo. It's not transactional. I am ride or die. It's not performance-based. It is grace-based. Parenthetically, I was walking through Salt Lake City's airport yesterday, and I saw a group of Native Americans singing to the top of their voice, God bless America. That's grace. So Hosea, here's what I want you to do. I, I, remember, I, I'm, I'm communicating my patience with my people, my grace with my people, who always cheat on me. Every time we sin, we commit spiritual adultery. So I know you just graduated from seminary, Hosea, and I know you just got called to be a pastor, but let me introduce you to your first lady. This girl named Gomer. She's a prostitute. Oh, by the way, she's gonna cheat on you. And when she does, Hosea chapter three, verse one, go again and get her. Go again and get her. Go again and get her. Why? Because that's exactly what I do when my people cheat on me. I'm patient. Then there's the Michael Jordan of patience. James says, you have seen the steadfastness of Job. Here's Job. Loses all of his business in one fell swoop. Here's Job. Goes to a funeral with 10 caskets, each casket holding one of his kids. Parents are not supposed to bury kids. Here's Job covered from head to toe with boils. Here's Job, wife chirping in his ear, curse God and die. And yet in Job 19, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives patience. He didn't feel like saying this. In fact, uh, one, of, one of the great pa uh, pastors in this area, Tom Schrader, I remember him one time saying, when going through tough times, always let what you know trump how you feel. It's as if Job's saying, I feel discouraged, but I know he lives. I feel down, but I know he lives. I feel despondent in this crock pot, but I, I know he lives. In the little Baptist church I grew up, we used to say it like this. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Never let your circumstances be a commentary on the goodness of God. Patience. Finally, in our last 50, 49, 48 seconds that we have together. He says, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. This blows my mind. James is saying, what you're going through is not random, haphazard. It's not kind of one-size-fits-all trial off the rack. It's actually custom-made and tailor-made for you. It was either divinely ordained or divinely allowed, but whatever it is, there's a purpose to it. There's a purpose to the cancer. There's a purpose to the wayward child. There is a purpose to the unemployment. There's a purpose to the hard time. There is a purpose. Growing up, my mom had an annoying hobby. It's called cross-stitching. <laughs> cross-stitching involves taking a cloth and weaving in threads in and out of it. 
I, I call it annoying because mama would always do this sitting on a sofa. And I, as a kid, would always watch her do it sitting at her feet, which means I was looking at it from the bottom up. I don't know if you've ever watched someone cross-stitch from the bottom up, but I mean, there's no rhythm or rhyme or reason. There's just all these dangling threads, no form. It looks like sheer chaos. And there's been times, I, I know I'm out west, but I grew up in Atlanta, and so I know this won't translate. But there's times in which I'm watching Mama do that from the bottom up, and it seems as if Mama's cheese has slid off her cracker. <laughs> One day I couldn't take it because mama would sit there for hours. Mama, mama, I don't understand why you're doing this. This just doesn't make sense. And she just kind of smiled and patted on the sofa next to her. And she says, why don't you sit down next to me? And when I sat down next to mama, I no longer saw it from the bottom up, but now I saw it from the top down. And when I saw it from the top down, everything changed for me. There was beauty and order and rhythm and rhyme and chaos. Scottsdale, you know fundamentally the problem with life? It is the problem of perspective. We just see it from the bottom up. And there's times you will go through things in this life. You can't see any rhythm or rhyme or reason. And it will feel as if God's cheese has slid off his cracker. God is saying, if you could sit down next to me, you would see that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. If you sat down next to me, you would understand that he who began the good work will be faithful to complete it. Trust me, I'm up to something in your life. Be patient. Whenever I teach preaching, I always say, you've got to answer the question, so what? You just made an investment of 35 or so minutes. What do you do with this? Sometimes we hear the word of God, we go, that's a good word, but it's just not where I'm at. So we put it on layaway and come back and get it. Other times we hear the word of God, and it's what I call a right now word. If this was a July 2nd word for you, and you would say, I'm in the crock pot. I'm just going through some things right now that are irritating, frustrating, exacerbating, and I need prayer, prayer for strength as I go through this tough season. I wanna pray for you. I don't know how y'all roll out here, but if you would say, yeah, that's a right now word for me, I'd, I'd love to pray for you. Would you just stand to your feet? You would say, that's exactly where I'm at right now. It's exactly where I'm at. It's exactly where I'm at. I'm going to pray, but I'm not the only one who has the Holy Spirit. If you're seated next to someone who's standing, there's complete freedom in this moment. I'd love for you to jump in and pray with me as I pray for these people who are standing. You may even want to stretch a hand towards them or stand with them however you feel comfortable, but let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm limited, I am finite. I don't know the headaches and the heartaches my brothers and sisters in this room are dealing with, but I call on one who does know. 
And God, I think that's a great place to start. We need to be reminded, God, that you know what it is we're dealing with. The psalmist says in Psalm chapter 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that not a single sparrow falls to the ground and you don't know about it. So God, you, you know, but not only do you know, but you actually care. The psalmist again says in Psalms 8, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? God, you, you care, you care, you care about the health crisis. You care about the financial situation. You care about the dry season in marriage. You care about the wayward child. You, you care about the depression I'm dealing with. You care, you care, you care. And so we just resist the lie of the enemy who would seek to tell us that you don't care. That's a lie. You do care. And we know that from your word. In fact, would you just whisper to yourself right now, God cares. God cares. So God, as we round third and head for home in this prayer, I, I just want to throw your word back on you. Your word says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. John 15 says, if we abide in you and you abide in us, that we can ask whatever we, we wish, it'll be done for us. That's your word. It's not what someone on a television is saying. It's your word. So here's what I'm asking, Lord God. Cure the cancer. Replenish the finances. Provide the job. Bring the wayward child back home. Get rid of the depression. It's what I'm asking. That and a host of others. But in the meantime, in between time, as we wait, give us the strength, God, to be patient. In Jesus' name.